Hello and welcome to Some Other Sphere, a podcast exploring our strange world, one conversation at a time, hosted by Rick Palmer. Folklore is a wonderful thing. It is deep-rooted in the human experience and is a vital component of countless cultures throughout time. There are some startling similarities in the beings and legends encountered across the globe, but also unique differences that set apart a culture's mythic landscape. A wonderful example of this is Japan, a land long shrouded in mystery and hidden from the West, which developed a storytelling tradition replete with a menagerie of unusual entities ready to leap from the subconscious and into the real world. These beings are usually classed as yokai, which is a term that itself can encompass a whole range of familiar creatures. Goblins, ghosts, monsters, as well as humans and animals that possess an unusual talent or quality. But it can also include urban legends and various other paranormal phenomena. My guest for this episode is illustrator and author Matthew Meyer. Matthew is an expert on yokai and has published three books on the subject. He is also an accomplished artist, and you can find examples of his work and writing on his website yokai.com, which is a comprehensive A to Z guide to the phenomena. I've been fascinated by yokai for a while now, and Japanese folklore in general, and it was great to talk to Matthew and learn more about this fascinating subject. Confusingly, at the beginning of the interview I call him Matt, but I thought I'd go with his full name for this introduction. Anyway, without further ado, enjoy! Matt, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So you um, are an expert in all things yokai. You have a, a website and you've written many books on, on the subject. And to start off with, just tell us a little bit about your yourself and your background and what drew you to Japanese folklore. Well, I think my entire life, I've always been interested in folklore in general. Uh, you know, I was one of those kids who grew up reading fantasy novels and always had my nose in a Dungeons and Dragons book, and that sort of thing. So folklore has always been really, really close to me. Um, and my introduction to Japanese folklore came much, much later. Um, when I was a college student, I did a homestay program in Japan. And at the time, I was an illustration major. So I was uh, when I was here, I was sort of keeping my eye on the artwork of Japan and one thing about Japanese art is that you can't really escape yokai and the folklore. There, there's such a huge part of the uh, of the art history of Japan. So, when I was over here and and looking at Japanese art, uh, that was one of the things that really caught my eye was that there was this sort of world of monsters and creatures that I had not really heard much about, uh, even though I was pretty familiar with world folklore. But here was this this sort of vast uh, collection of creatures that I hadn't seen before. So I sort of delved into it uh, from that as a starting point, and it just became a point of fascination for me. Hmm, cool. I, one thing I get a sense from uh, from your website and the, the, the stories that relate to the, to, the, to the different kinds of yokai is that the supernatural is very much an integral part of, of Japanese society, whereas I get the sense here in the West, people many people are interested and fascinated by the supernatural but in general when it comes to how it's depicted in the mainstream it's sort of slightly a novelty and not taken too seriously but in japan it seems like it's more 
embedded in their culture. Is is that accurate? Uh, I think in some ways it is. Um, if you speak to the average person, they're not going to be you know speaking about you know fairies and monsters or anything uh, <laughs> any more than you know your neighbors would. So in some ways, it's it's not all that deeply ingrained. But I do think that um, there's a lot of history there, uh, and whereas I think in at least in america and, and maybe in european countries when we talk about folklore and, and fairy stories we, we we talk about sort of kid stories we think of disney movies we think of grimm's fairy tales but uh in a lot of ways japanese folklore is sort of all ages it's not just for kids although a lot of it does appeal to kids and a lot of it is geared towards kids but a lot of these older stories they're they're quite violent they're quite gruesome and they're not necessarily child stories a lot of them are for adults as well mm, yeah definitely i mean one thing that i i absolutely love is how varied they are and and frankly bizarre i think my favorite yokai is the one the ashiara yashiki which is a a giant hairy foot that kind of stomps into someone's <laughs> house and demands to be cleaned i i just i think that's um, brilliant yeah, it is a fantastic story. And, and that's actually a good example of one that was not written with children in mind. That was written uh, with, you know, as a standard story for adults to enjoy. Uh, it's part of a collection of stories from around Tokyo that uh, specifically this neighborhood called Honjo in Tokyo, which, which was uh, a big neighborhood where a lot of supernatural stories came about. And so the Ashirai Yashiki was, was one of the stories from Honjo that collected uh some of this neighborhood's bizarre you know sort of x-files style stories <laughs> together oh yeah definitely so what era of japanese history do these stories start being told because i i know that japan has a it has a history of being a like more recently periods of being open to other countries and then periods of isolationism and what era do these stories about uk sort of start getting written down and who's writing those stories well, just like with you know, with everywhere, uh, folklore is sort of something that's always with the people. So you've you've got folklore dating back to prehistoric times in Japan, and mm. it's always been an evolving and changing story. But uh, you can definitely point to the Edo period, uh, which is from about sixteen hundred to like eighteen sixty ish. The the shogunate period is also sometimes called. But that was the period where yokai stories really flourished most of all. And, you know, part of that is thanks to the fact that it was a period of very long peace and development in Japan. So it was sort of a, a prosperous era. Uh, printing was widespread and uh, literacy was very widespread as well. So you had a, a large population of people who weren't fighting and they were hungry for books and stories. And so... Uh, it was sort of ripe conditions for a rich literary culture to develop. And so you have a very big blossoming literature scene during the Edo period of Japan. And likewise, uh, yokai stories really, really boomed during that time. They were extremely popular, um, especially during the summer months. Uh, one of the favorite pastimes for keeping cool was to gather in your friend's big house and light a bunch of candles and tell ghost stories so that the, the scariness would sort of send chills down your spine and keep you cool in the hot summer nights. Oh, that sounds great. Um, yeah, we just had a heat wave here in the UK, so yeah, that would have been <laughs> yeah, great. Yeah, here too. <laughs> <laughs> so does it, there was this 
tradition of folklore tradition in Japan and and in the time period that you mentioned does that sit alongside the because Japan is a its state religion is is Shinto and that's a, a sort of animistic religion and do those two kind of complement each other do you think I mean I I imagine having a a society where animism is encouraged helps to sort of propagate these these ideas and create an environment for storytelling with a rich with a rich range of characters do you think that that element of Japanese society sort of allowed for this blossoming of stories about yokai yeah absolutely um Shinto as well as Buddhism um Mm. you know the other main religion that is that is mixed in uh with Shinto to sort of create what you would call Japanese religion um yeah so a lot of yokai started out in ancient ancient times as local deities or gods and eventually they sort of uh as the gods were forgotten and no longer worshipped they the stories remained and so a lot of these yokai that remain today from ancient times are were originally gods but today are just these little degenerate goblin creatures that that entertain us mm-hmm. Uh, similarly, uh, especially during the Edo period, when Buddhism was was paramount, Buddhism was sort of the state religion of the of the samurai class. So there was a, a very strong push of Buddhism during those periods, and so a lot of yokai are reflections and reactions against Buddhism. Um, it was a period of censorship, of course, so you couldn't really criticize political leaders, but you could tell these stories using. Uh, you know, monsters as your characters and, and sort of get away with making cracks about uh, clergy or government or important figures by presenting them as characters in a, in a folktale. Right. Okay. But certainly the, the, the nature of religion in Japan definitely plays a big factor in, in the folklore that we have here. Mm, that's interesting. Uh, I had a I guess I'm recently who's who's uh, an expert in Celtic mythology, and we were talking about the the Mabinogion, and we were mm. wondering whether that the stories in the Mabinogion are, are were perhaps created to sort of act as allegories for how to handle power responsibly, because the the characters in those stories are often quite powerful. They're you know they're kings and princesses and 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 warriors and things like that. And it was interesting to wonder if sometimes these stories can be used to sort of provide a lessons to the to those in power of, of how to behave yeah i think so i think everywhere you look folklore is you know it's a reflection of the the fears and the insecurities and the hopes of you know the, the general people who are telling these stories so when people are worried or upset about what their government or what their clergy or what their neighbors are doing you're going to see that sort of behavior reflected in the funny stories that they tell hmm. so here in the west i think that a lot of the time we're encouraged to see things as either real or not real or, you know, existing and imaginary. In mm-hmm. in Japan, do you think that there's more of an open attitude to a sort of like a liminality of, of being? And, you know, not so much that people believe that these yokai fundamentally exist and, but they, they can exist in a, in a mythic context. And that doesn't mean that they're not real. It just means that that's how they exist. Yeah, I think t- these days you're going to find that most people are very, um, you know, scientific or, or rational minded, just like right. you would find in in any Western country as well. Um, but certainly that duality between the you know the natural and the supernatural didn't really exist 
in the old days, it was just more of a continuum. You know, people thought that these monsters actually existed and they thought that they existed among them and in the real world. So there wasn't an idea that, oh, this is a supernatural creature. It's just, this is a creature and it can do this or that. So even, you know, animals like foxes, uh, tanuki, badgers, bats, basically any just regular animal you have today in Japanese folklore, these animals have magical powers. They can shape shift, they can cast spells, they can trick people. And it wasn't so much that people thought, oh, there's foxes and there's magical foxes. It's just that there was a continuum is that, you know, this fox is just a regular fox who's too stupid to cast spells or, or do something <laughs> like that. Whereas other foxes out there, they can do this. So I would say that, you know, in, in the days before um, uh, Western scientific thought or just, you know, the, you know, scientific method of examining things uh, you definitely had this, everything was a gray zone, just a continuum of everything that exists. Hmm. Cool. And I know um, in Japanese culture that there are plenty of festivals uh, that go on throughout the year that tap into this idea that we were talking yeah, about. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, I, I know in you want you were talking that at the moment in Japan there's a festival called uh, Obon. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, so Obon is is something you'll find across um, every East Asian country. So you'll you'll find it in China and Korea, and and even the same holiday by different names in in Southeast Asian countries. So it's a, a Buddhist tradition, um, and in Japan, it's you know it's got its own local flavor. Um, but the the basic story of this is that um, in in the Buddhist tradition, there's a holiday in in midsummer in the middle of summer um, where the dead are released from hell, all of the, uh, you know, the, the boiling cauldrons that these souls are being tortured in. They lift up the, the lids and they allow all the dead to go home for a couple of days and be with their family. Um, this, you know, this ties in very strongly with the idea of ancestor worship and which is big in Japanese folklore. So there is a lot of mixture of Buddhism and Shinto together. Uh, and you see this as uh, a big holiday. Uh, for Americans, they might equate it to like the Thanksgiving holiday or maybe the Christmas holiday, where basically everyone in the country packs up and goes back to their hometown. It's the biggest travel period uh, of the year. It's very hard to find hotels or travel mm. without getting really bogged down in horrible traffic. Um, and so it's not just the people who go back to their hometown, according to folklore. It's, it's your living family all comes back to your hometown, but also your ancestors come back to your hometown. So there's, in addition to just hanging out with your family and enjoying the company, you also visit your family grave. Uh, you wash it, you clean it, you weed it, make sure that the gravestone is well taken care of. Um, you also will visit your family altar, which is usually in, uh, in, in your parents' house or the, the, whoever's the head of the household, their home has a big family altar. And that's where the spirits of your uh, dead relatives and ancestors all reside. So they're sort of invited food is set out for them as well. Uh, so it, it's strongly tied into the, the religion and the folklore of the country. It sounds fascinating. Have you, have you experienced uh, Obon ceremonies yourself? Yeah, uh, every year. Of course, I'm sorry. It's probably a silly question, really, but 
my wife's family is Japanese, so I, I celebrate Obon with them, and uh, it's a great time. You know, it, it's it feels a lot like any family holiday, Christmas or New Year's or Thanksgiving, uh, except that it's in the middle of the summer, so it's swelteringly hot. Oh right. But yeah, you have barbecues. Um, it usually coincides the same season has like the local summer festivals. So you're going to have fireworks, you're going to have parades uh, and it all happens at generally in the same time period. So it's, it's a very lively and very exciting and very fun time. Nice. Sounds it. Fortunately for, for lovers of folklore, it's also the time when, when ghost stories are very common too. So it, it's extra special for me and for yokai lovers who, who get to not only enjoy just the, the fun celebrations of Obon, but, we also get to to tap into the the folklore that's there. One of the really interesting folklore traditions is uh, a lot of local temples will set up uh, what are called hell scrolls, and yeah, the, these are um, at least in the case of I'll, I'll give the case of my local temple here that that my wife's family is part of. Um, down at that temple, they set up this hell scroll that's many hundreds of years old. And they've been setting, they set it out every Obon and they have been doing it for centuries. And basically it's a very large painting of depictions of hell with people having their body parts removed, people being skinned alive, demons stretching people on torture racks, burning them, stabbing them with hot pokers, just every horrible thing you can imagine. It's very much like a Hieronymus Bosch painting with, uh, little figures mm. all over these paintings that are screaming and torturing being tortured and demons everywhere it's you know for, for children <laughs> it's terrifying you know everyone will uh every older person will tell you that, that when they were kids and they came down to the temple they would go home crying because they were so <laughs> really? scared of these paintings but but it's really amazing to see these really old old paintings with with these graphic and gruesome images on them being displayed during obon as just sort of a uh, reminder of of the teachings of hell and and things like that it, it's a fascinating experience it, it, it does sound it it reminds me of I've, I've been in churches over here in in uk and some of them still have like the faded paintings of similar imagery really like a big hell mouth and yeah it's it's surprising like a, how a lot similar of people being is, kind of yeah. pushed towards a gigantic sort of moor of hell and when you were describing that just then, it was, it's, it's yeah. surprisingly, well, maybe not surprisingly similar. Yeah, there's there's a lot of uh, interesting similarities between Buddhist and Christian hell. Visually, you probably would not have, be able to tell them apart, I think. Right, yeah. So hell seems a an underworld where people are, you know, tortured. As that idea is is not just a Christian one, but the, the, the word hell kind of makes you think of a, like a Christian theology. Is that, do those ideas come from times when Japan was more open to outside influence and to some ideas in, in Japanese mythology, are they, are they ones that have been taken from other cultures that have come to Japan? Well, there's definitely cross-cultural pollination going back thousands of years. Um, I wouldn't go so far as to say that, that they were borrowed from, you know, Western countries or anything, but I do think they share similar roots. Uh, as you probably know, the the christian concept of hell is is heavily based on uh on greek you know mm. especially the idea of of the underworld and and the greek underworld uh heavily heavily influenced by that and of course the greeks conquered everything from from europe to india and so in in between you know persia and india you've got where where afghanistan is today there was a very very 
uh, rich kingdom in the years after Alexander the Great, the, the Bactrian kingdom there. And Buddhism traveled through that kingdom, uh, coloni uh, colonized it or, or spread to what is Afghanistan today, and then moved into China. So you, there was this sort of very rich cross-pollinization of, at the very least, the art, but also the a lot of the traditions of uh, Hellenistic Greece and uh, Indian Buddhism sort of mixed together in that area. And so a lot of the ideas were transmitted back and forth, not necessarily consciously, but just through the multicultural kingdom that was there. So you have some of these images that, that were originally Greek in nature, uh, particularly if you studied art history, you can look at the, the way that statuary changed at that time and how hmm. um, Indian and Afghan statues at that point picked up a lot of very realistic Greek style naturalism. Right. Okay. And, and there's a lot of um, speculation about in what ways Greek philosophers were influenced by uh, Indian philosophy as well. But whatever it was, there was a lot of cross-cultural pollinization in, in Afghanistan and in that area in Persia during that time. And it eventually made its way into China and it also made its way back towards Greece. Uh, and from China, it made its way into Japan. Um, China has always been a, a, a very, very important part of all of Eastern Asian uh, culture and folklore. So a lot of Japanese folklore comes directly from China. Buddhism, of course, comes straight from China into Japan. So uh, Chinese Buddhism would have been influenced by the Hellenistic Buddhism of the Bactrian kingdom. So it's there's definitely some Greek influence there, but I don't think you could really call it a conscious transmission. It's just sort of the, the way human culture is inherently interconnected throughout uh, all of history and throughout the whole globe. Right. Okay. Because yeah, we can get the idea that a globalized society is a relatively modern thing, but actually, when you investigate, you can tell that humans have been interacting with each other across vast distances for quite a while. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's sort of a little bit of of modern hubris is that we think that oh, it wasn't until airplanes and the mm. internet and all this that that all these cultures were were connected, but they really were. I mean, they weren't directly connected to each other, but uh, humans have always been trading with their neighbors and you're, you're next to somebody on both sides, wherever you are. So uh, I think the, it's the idea of globalization is it, it really goes back a lot farther than we think it does. Mm. And with Japan's more recent history, um, are, are those events influencing folklore? I'm thinking sort of post-World War Two, and you know, with the dropping of at atom bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki did. I mean, I know that event kind of, culturally is is massively significant and we've gotten plenty of stories that have come after that i mean the one i can mm -hmm. the one that's probably most well known is godzilla but does that time period has that has that influenced some of the yokai that you've heard about um there's definitely been new yokai that have been sort of you know invented because of 20th century events but it's hard to say where where the idea of pop culture and folklore sort of divide. I mean, there, you know, it's it's sort of a gradation, uh, and also yokai that are consciously created versus yokai that sort of just come about naturally, according to just stories that build up over time. 
Hmm. It's hard to say specifically what what is and what isn't folklore, but for sure, urban legends, um, you know, modern stories like that come about uh, all the time, and there there are a lot of stories about ghosts in taxis, and you know, besides commercial products like Godzilla, where where it's a direct result of the the sort of the uh, mental place that Japan was in after World War II. But uh, there are even stories about ghosts after the 2011 tsunami and earthquake. So I think folklore never stops. It's always creating. So anywhere you look, you're going to see whatever recent events have happened. There's going to be offshoots that sort of become urban legends and then eventually get considered as part of the folklore. Yeah, I suppose folklore is is the stories that people tell, sort of outside of an academic viewpoint, isn't it? It's it's sort of stories told by communities and kind of kept within them. Yeah, I think the yeah the most important thing that you could really say about folklore is that like to contrast it with um, a commercial object. You know, Godzilla is owned by Toho, the movie studio, and it, you know it's an intellectual property, so. You can make up your own stories about Godzilla, but it's still a, a mm. copyright character. And similarly, even if it's a non-copyright character, if you can trace the source back to a specific author and a specific owner of that idea, then it's not quite folklore. I think the key is for folklore, it's got to be anonymous or at least um, so well transmitted that there is no one owner. Everybody owns it. Okay. So a lot of urban legends can count as that. And of course, these old folk tales where we can sort of trace where they go back to, but there's no original person who, or, who, who wrote it down. There's no sort of canon version of it. Right, yeah. I, I, was, um, I was listening to uh, another podcast that was talking sort of about, about myths and, and myths are sort of, they're stories mm-hmm. that we have, but that we don't know who wrote them. It's, it's almost like, stories that we didn't write they're just there yeah yeah okay cool so um going back to your work when you were coming up with your the idea for your website where did you start with that was there was there a particular yokai that you thought i mean and you I mean your website kind of lists them from a to z so i appreciate that you probably maybe maybe started with yeah. the a's i don't know um but was there when you had that idea was there something that kind of that you focused on that you knew would make that idea work well, originally it wasn't even uh, yokai.com. I, di- I didn't have the website when I started doing this. What what started right. the whole project was uh, after I moved to Japan uh, after college, um, I wanted to focus you know, uh, on the art, and I also wanted to focus on the, the folklore, as I said earlier. The, these are things that really, really interested me at a personal level. And one thing I noticed is that looking into Japanese folklore, there was very, very little information in English on the subject. I mean, there were stories by Lafcadio Hearn and a couple of other translations about Japanese folklore and, and stories from mostly from people who died a hundred years ago. Um, very little in between then and now. And so I decided that I would start looking into this and translate it and turn it into a bit of an art project too, because art and and especially yokai folklore are so strongly intertwined. So I started out on my blog just translating and writing one yokai every day for the month of October as sort of like a Halloween special. 
So mm-hmm. I did, you know, a, a 31 days and 31 yokai kind of project, which I called a yokai a day. And that was pretty popular, more than I thought it would be, I guess, you know, with thanks to search engine optimization and everything, people were, people were coming to my website from places that I had no idea to expect people coming from. And, and I did it again the next year and, and the following year. And it just, every year it just ballooned until it was this massive thing where uh, other people were doing a yokai a day during October as well. And, uh, it, it was really, really fun to see how much people were enjoying the stories that I was posting in the illustrations and sort of helping introduce people to this world that really barely existed in English. Um, so that's when I started doing my books. I, I did my first two books based on that original illustration project. And after my second book came out, I launched yokai.com sort of to just compile everything. And because it, it, you know, having a blog doesn't really cut it when you've got this many visitors and they're coming to your website specifically for yokai, it makes sense to have a dedicated site to that. So I, I sort of built yokai.com as an offshoot of my blog and it just sort of ballooned from there. Right. Yeah. And I guess we getting people telling you about yokai as well that you hadn't covered yet. Uh-huh. People people would say, oh, can you do this yokai? Can you do this, this yokai? Things that they had heard in stories or in anime or read in a book, and they wanted to know more about what it was, but when they searched, they couldn't find anything. So I would do the research and, and do a little write-up on it and post an illustration for it. Uh, so it, there's definitely um, you know, some both push and pull from, from my supporters. I've got... Um, people making requests or people saying, Oh, I want to see more of more Fox yokai, more animal yokai. Can you do a few more of those or, or requesting a specific one or saying you've done a lot of scary ones recently. Can you do something cute? So I'll, <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll shift focus a lot. So uh, it, it's really fun to, to chat with the the fans and see what they're interested in and what they're looking for and, and try to cover the vast range that the, the world of yokai folklore represents. Hmm. I mean, I, I I love your artwork. It's the integral part of of your work, isn't it? I mean, I you yeah, really captured you. that. <laughs> you you really managed to capture that very sort of Japanese art look. Did you? I mean, how did you? How did you go about sort of doing that? I mean, I mean, I know that you you trained to be an illustrator and stuff, but yeah. So uh, obviously, my my formal education is an illustration so so that certainly helps right, um, yeah. <laughs> but um well and among you know all of the art that i've studied japanese woodblock prints are basically my favorite style and and genre so um you know these these prints that were created during mostly in the in the 18 and, and 1900s uh they just you know the, i think a lot of people really appreciate them you know everyone knows that the the print of the great wave is sort of the the symbol of japan it's it's Hmm. it's as famous as the mona lisa really Um, yeah and that style just uh struck me so strongly when i was a student and so i sought to not necessarily copy the style but just to to reflect the style in my own artwork so i i spend a lot of my time looking at woodblock prints i've got countless books on woodblock prints and, and prints in my house so it's a genre that i that i really really love and so it just it inspires me and influences my own artwork 
Yeah, definitely. Is there is there a reason that woodblock printing was so popular in Japan, as opposed to oils and paintings like that? Well, it was because I think primarily because the printing industry industry here was so well developed. Um, mm. I mean, Japan and 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 Asia were hundreds of years more advanced than than Europe when it came to to the printing press at that time. I mean, in, in you know, when the printing press was in Europe, it was mostly just used to create Bibles. Whereas in China and Japan, there was a vast world of all kinds of literature. You had, you had pulp fiction, you had comic books. And, and this is, you know, I'm talking about the, the 16 and 1700s. Uh, you, you had pornography from those times that were printed and mass produced and, and spread <laughs> everywhere. So, um, you know, a woodblock print is pretty cheap to create as far as it goes uh it's you know just a carving and then you can create a, a huge ton of uh of copies of it so uh it's much easier to do than it is to do with oils or watercolors so um you mentioned your books there i know that you've just released a a new book i mean the book of haku taku what's that about so that's the third volume of my yokai encyclopedia series mm. um and each one of them is basically a, a, gen, a general introduction to um, about 100 yokai, slightly over 100 yokai in each book, uh, each one of them illustrated. Uh, they each have a, a slight theme to them. Um, and the theme of the third book is yokai that have been imported to Japan from foreign cultures. So just like you know, the reason I was able to go off about the, the Bactrian kingdom and the transmission of Buddhism from, from India through Afghanistan through China is because that was part of the theme of this book. So it's sort of fresh on my mind right yeah. now. Um, but basically, uh, the, the main focus of that book is yokai that were not necessarily born in Japan, but they, they came of age in Japan. So they started out in one country as one thing. They were transmitted through many other countries, either along the Silk Road or by, um, by, by Buddhist missionaries and so on. And eventually they came to Japan and blended in with the local folklore and became their own unique creature. And so I, I traced a lot of the history of those specific yokai back to their home countries and said where they came from, as well as detailing what they mean in Japanese society and Japanese folklore. Okay. And the Hakutaku, who's the namesake of the book, is one of those creatures. He was the Hakutaku was originally from uh, from China, where he's called the Baitsu, and Hakutaku is the Japanese reading of his Chinese name. But basically, it was this creature that was found in the mountains by the emperor of China, and it was this uh, cow-like creature with many eyes and horns, and it spoke to the emperor and told him all about the supernatural creatures that existed in the world. And it listed them off and told him about, you know, angels and demons and monsters and their names and how to use their meat for medicine and how to kill them if you need to. So basically he dictated a, a massive encyclopedia of supernatural creatures to the emperor. And that book was supposedly written down and, uh, kept as a, a guide for the emperors but at some point in history it got lost and no copies survive today but the story of the hakutaku itself survives right okay yeah that sounds it sounds very much like a grimoire <laughs> 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I thought that was a good uh, story and a good title to to base my book on, since it's similar to that. It's you know being a yokai encyclopedia. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I mean, perhaps. Yeah, I mean, it's good that you're kind of recreating that book in in a way. <laughs> you know, we're like listing these creatures and and what they're about, and maybe not how to eat them, but. <laughs> But um <laughs> well some of them do have how to eat them and in, in the instructions. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Generally though <laughs> good things don't happen when you eat a yokai. I know I can imagine. Yeah. Um yeah, well just stick to, you know, the regular food, I guess. Yeah, stick to animals that are not magical if you can. Right. So is there talking about grimoires, is there a tradition of of magic and and that kind of practice in Japan alongside yokai? Definitely. Yeah. Especially there is a tradition of um, monster grimoires, you know, in monster manuals or monster encyclopedias, just like the books that I'm creating today. Um, if you look back at the print collections of the Edo period, you've got lots of these sort of um, yokai, either scrolls or books of paintings and prints that are just vast collections of creatures and their stories that go with them. So um particularly in in china and japan you've got a lot of this sort of um you know gotta catch them all kind of idea of of collecting monsters and and filing them down in books so what i'm doing isn't isn't new at all it's uh just the the latest i guess in the very very old tradition of making monster encyclopedias yeah a very proud tradition i imagine definitely yeah, I mean, fun for me, and uh, I, I certainly I adore the old books. I, I get to look through them when I'm making my own books because I use them as as one of my primary sources. So it, it's just so much fun to pour through these old books that have illustrations and stories by their side, and just read about these bizarre and unimaginable creatures that people managed to come up with hundreds and hundreds of years ago. Hmm. So, so with the advanced printing technology that they had did that mean that your average person could get their hands on them because in the in the west it was these books would be you know for the for the very rich but right was there was there more of a democratization of that sort of information in japan absolutely yeah um edo period japan had one had one of if not the highest literacy rate in the world um i'm not sure if it was number one but it was very very high for literacy in the world during that time um, you know, the city of Tokyo, which was called Edo back then, almost everybody could read. And so these books were, were mass produced and sold very, very cheap and just, you know, scattered all over the city. And everyone would read them. Reading was a, a massive pastime. So it, it was, you know, it was not that different from today, really, when you think about it with bookstores everywhere and and just everybody being able to read it was sort of just a given right yeah i mean it's just it's interesting that it, with that it was it's, it's nice that those people were able to sort of get that information and and make their own minds up about it whereas mm-hmm. whereas along for a long time here in the west that information was pretty much controlled and and your like the your ability to get information well i mean there was there was definitely folklore but but any information that would be sort of put in a in a book was definitely harder to get your hands on i just, I just wonder i just wonder if that sort of that ability to have that information at that time sort of goes some way to explaining or, or giving it some information as to 
the the cultural attitude now that Japan has to to this kind of thing because like you say like a you know we have Studio Ghibli films which are very popular and lots of animated series and I mean, it's it's interesting to to see that people had that access to those stories for a long time. Yeah, I mean I'm I'm not sure if we can say truly that Japan necessarily has more folklore than other countries and other yeah. cultures do. But I think it's very fair to say that there's more preserved folklore. You know, when we talk about a lot of um, European stories, I think one of the first things that comes to mind is, is Grimm's fairy tale. And that's because, you know, the brothers Grimm traveled around and, and collected these stories in anthologies. But, you know, aside from them, I'm sure there's a few other people who did that. But in the case of Japan, you don't just have the brothers Grimm. You've got all of these people writing books, publishing them, printing them. And those, you know, the, the books that didn't get lost or were destroyed by time were saved and scanned. So we have just so much more literature from that period here. Right. Yeah. You know, the, and being cheap and massively produced, that literature was also so much more widespread in its time. Whereas I think even with the brothers Grimm, those books were fairly expensive. Um, you know, you weren't seeing paupers on the street running around buying copies of the, you know, the whole Brothers Grimm. It was, it was a carefully crafted book, carefully bound. Uh, a lot of these Japanese books were only 10, 20 pages long, made on cheap paper, very cheaply bound. I mean, they probably would have fallen apart after a few readings or a few years of use, but uh, there was just so much more widespread um, possession of them. Mm, yeah. So I think that helps to preserve a lot of folklore that, that may otherwise have been lost. Right. Okay. So do you think uh, in more modern times with the popularity of the Studio Ghibli films and series like Pokemon and, and there's a yokai series as well, isn't there actually? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, there's, there's yokai watch, although it's, it's other than the name, it's very, very loosely based on yokai. Yeah. Yeah, of course. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean that those, those shows are very popular in the West. Do you think, that perhaps because these characters are so rich. I mean, I mean, I also, I mean, I understand that it, it's a very commercialized version mm-hmm. of this folklore. But, but do you think that part of the reason it's so popular is because it's just something that's not quite as well known in the West? Like the the access that people have to their own folklore is is slightly less. It, 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 there's slightly less access to to that kind of folklore. Well, I think that. Uh, like particularly like in the case of Pokemon, it it kind of feels like folklore, you know. Um, when you're a Pokemon fan, you've got all of these creatures that you can learn about. You've got a, a game that you can play to interact with them. So it's sort of like its own little separate, you know, obviously commercialized, but it is its own little world of lore. And I mm-hmm. think it it taps into the very very same or at least very similar spirit as yokai do um you know i think whoever created pokemon was familiar with uh the the monsters and and the yokai of japanese folklore because it it does follow a very similar pattern where there's this large collection of magical creatures who live in the world among us and you can uh capture them all down in this booklet of yours pokedex or whatever and i i think Whenever they created that, they they tapped into the same spirit that uh, 
Japan had when they were collecting yokai in books back in the Edo period. So I think that it's just a, a generally it's a fun thing. So even if you're not Japanese, if, if you're from another country and another culture, you see these and it's just a human nature. You, you, you're attracted to the, the fun of that. So it's definitely the, the entertainment value of collecting folklore. It, it's part of us as humans. So whether it's your own country's folklore or another country's folklore or a commercial invention like Pokemon or Yokai Watch, it, it taps into the same spirit, I think. Yeah, I mean, I one thing I've come to realize from doing this podcast and talking about different subjects is that people, societies, always love a a good story, and they're, yep. they're very yeah. they're very important in in human history. And I think it also it shows that the a story that's popular in one culture, if you tell it to somebody from another culture, even if they've got no familiarity with the original culture, they're generally still going to love that story. Mm. There, there's something universal about the stories that humans like, even when we have very different values or very different uh, cultures, something about what we like as people is the same across any culture. Yeah, I, I would agree there. So when it comes to the supernatural, um, is there, a, I mean, I'm guessing there probably is, but how, how big an interest is there in Japan for things like UFOs and Bigfoot and that kind of supernatural phenomena? That definitely exists. Um, Bigfoot, there, there's no Japan, there's no Japanese Bigfoot per se, but there are similar cryptids in in Japanese contemporary folklore. We've got uh, the the Tsuchino Ko, which is like a, a weird little snake creature, which is based on yokai as well. Um, you've got some of the weird uh, undersea creatures. I think uh, if you look up Ningen, uh, you'll find mm. these little white humanoid creatures that are supposed supposedly swimming deep down in the arctic uh and of course ufos are are a thing here um ghost photography and and ghost stories are quite popular here i'd say even in even more so than uh in western countries but there's definitely a lot of popularity with more contemporary uh urban legend style stories and and cryptids that it's uh, popular here as well, yeah. Yeah, with ghost stories, I was thinking that two really popular Japanese films of the last sort of couple of decades were the Ring films and and the Grudge, and those are oh, yeah. terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> Japanese ghost stories really do seem to have a like a panache when it comes to being terrifying. In Japanese ghost stories, um, are the dead usually sort of annoyed or vengeful? <laughs> <laughs> almost always yeah um the 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 themes that you see in in stories like the ring and the grudge those are the exact same themes that you see in ghost stories that are 400 years old here right um, they i feel like japan really sort of perfected the art of ghost storytelling during the edo period um you know and not only just um story wise but also presentation wise um Kabuki and no theater were, were sort of the, the really big and um, flamboyant theater types with big costumes and, and gorgeous sets. And, you know, if you've ever seen the um, Japanese actors with heavy makeup and, and huge wigs and bright costumes, that sort of all goes back to the Edo period. And they really did a good job of telling a lot of major ghost stories on stage as part of theater. 
and they were very popular back then. They're they're popular these days as well. But when you see a movie, uh, a ghost movie in Japan, they're they're taking directly on the same techniques, like the the scary girl ghost with the long black hair kind of motif. Those all come straight out of Edo period ghost stories. So um, it seems so new and, and scary to Western viewers, but it's part of a very long and continued tradition to Japanese viewers. Yeah, I guess I guess in the ring as well, part of that ghost story involves modern technology, doesn't it? Like a tape. Yeah, it's a very good fusion of of the uh, old story themes with contemporary devices. Yeah, because because definitely telling things on on a VHS tape takes it way out of the past. And I think one thing you see with a lot of Western ghost stories is that we're often focused on. Um, Victorian themes, you know, we we love the uh, the Victorian ghosts with their um, with their chains, like Jake, uh, like yeah. uh, Jacob Marley, you know, the the Dickensian style. That, uh, English and and American ghost storytelling is very much that uh, Dickensian period. Or in America, we have, we love our colonial ghost stories, hmm. but in Japan, you you don't necessarily have to tie a ghost to one period. Uh, they work well in historical stories and they work very well in contemporary stories. Yeah. I mean, I, I would, I completely agree. In, in, in the West there'll be a, a haunted house uh, that kind of retains, yep. sort of retains a memory of, of a tragic event mm-hmm. and, then, and then replays that event with new people and, and things like that. Mm-hmm. Are there haunted house traditions in Japan? Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, they they have theme haunted house as amusement parks just like uh just like right. back in, in in america and i'm sure they do in the uk as well um the idea of a of a haunted house is where where the house itself is is possessed is probably a little less common here yeah uh, if you're familiar with like um the amityville horror where the, it's the house itself that has the curse uh, and a lot of yeah. West or Hollywood movies where where the house itself has the curse. In Japan, it's usually a ghost that is causing it, but the ghost may be anchored to a specific place. Um, I think one of the biggest differences between Western ghost stories and Japanese ghost stories is that in Western ghost stories, there's almost always a mystery tied to the ghost. It, it's a horror story, but it's also a mystery story. And yeah. part of the key is unlocking the ghost's needs and fulfilling those needs and, and trying to put the ghost to rest. Whereas in Japanese ghost stories, you can't put the ghost to rest. Um, there may be a little bit of mystery as to why the ghost appeared, but usually it's revealed pretty quickly. And it's more about just the horror that the ghost does. And ultimately, in the end, the ghost wins because you just can't stop it. The, the dead don't die, they don't sleep, they don't give up, and nothing the living will do will ever appease them. So there's more of an existential horror, I guess, in Japanese horror and Japanese ghost stories, whereas with Western and Hollywood ghost stories, it, it seems more like a mystery that needs to be solved. Right, yeah, yeah. It's, it's always a solution, I suppose, in mm-hmm. in, in Western ghost stories. No, that's, that's fascinating. One, one thing I do also find is that I get the sense in in Japanese ghost stories and and these stories in general that that the supernatural entities will find the person just as much as the people will find the 
the supernatural entity in terms of encounters it's a i'm thinking of mm-hmm. completely away from ghost stories but um in my neighbor totoro those that that encounter the, the encounter that happens between those children and totoro seems to happen at like exactly the right time and it's not sort of puzzling to the children it's just they encountered this being at a time when they sort of needed to mm-hmm. yeah in a lot of Western stories, you'll see where the, the ghost is tied to a specific event. Like he, he always appears at midnight on the staircase right. and repeats what he did when he died or something like that. Whereas in Japan, the ghost can haunt a, a person or a place or a thing. So it, it could be tied to a house. But once you walk in there, you're haunted too. And anywhere you go, that ghost can manifest. And it's it, it's more like a, uh, I would say it's more like instead of a, a trapped soul, it's more like a living curse. Right. So anything that comes in contact with the the ghost in Japanese folklore can later be hunted down or or caught by the ghost and can even transmit it as well. Hmm. I suppose it's sort of like there isn't our world and the supernatural world. There's just there's just the supernatural world, and we live in a sort of more rationalized end of that. But if but we can kind of like wander into the supernatural world, and then we're on their turf, basically. Yeah, basically, I think that's a, a fair way to put it. Um, you know, it, it's all a continuum. Um, there's not necessarily a strong divide between uh, where ghosts are and where we are. It's just that we tend not to see them. Uh, but at any moment, you can accidentally cross into that world and mm. suddenly there you are confronting uh, a horror that is definitely going to kill you. Right. Oh dear. <laughs> no, that's 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 really interesting. Well, Matt, this has been a a really fantastic chat. Thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. Thanks. It was a lot of fun. Thank you for having me. So, if people want to find out more about you and where to get hold of your books, how do they best do that? You can find my books on Amazon. Um, but probably the easiest way would be to follow the link from yokai.com. You'll find links to all three of my books. Uh, you'll also see a link to my Patreon project if you'd like to uh, become a supporter of yokai.com. And you can see all of my yokai up there as well. Excellent. Well, I'll make sure to put a link to your website in the show notes. Thanks. Brilliant. Well, yeah. Thanks, Matt. Yeah, it was it was great. Thanks a lot for having me. Well, that episode was a real education for your humble host. I've been interested in Japanese folklore and mythology for a long time now. But to be honest, a fair amount of my knowledge came from pop culture, which is fine as an introduction, but clearly there is so much more complexity to this subject. That's fine though. I feel my role on this podcast is to try and ask the experts the right sort of questions in order to better understand the topic. And I like to think that this time I did okay. The link between levels of literacy and sophisticated printing technology in Japan in the late medieval period and the preservation of folklore was really interesting and not something I'd ever considered. It was intriguing as well to hear about the original book of Hakutaku. Previously, when I thought of bestiaries and grimoires, I would imagine dusty texts from Renaissance Europe, but of course these kind of books would exist in other countries. If you are able to get supernatural beings to tell you the secrets necessary to increase your power in the material realm, you're going to try and do it, wherever you are, and we see stories about this kind of thing across the globe. Japan has magical and occult traditions that display archetypal similarities to numerous other cultures. But saying that, there will always be that unique quality that comes from the people and the stories that they've told and retold over the centuries. If you haven't been to Matt's website, yokai.com yet, I can't recommend it enough.
He's a super talented artist, and it's worth visiting just to look at his artwork, if nothing else. But why do that? You'd be missing out on the story of the giant hairy foot that demands to be cleaned, along with many others just as interesting. You can also find out more details about his books and his Patreon page. So that's almost it for now. I just wanted to acknowledge another small milestone that the podcast has achieved. This was episode 20. It feels wonderful to get to this point, and it wouldn't have been possible without the brilliant guests that I've had on. Thanks so much to all of you. Each episode has been a pleasure to record. Thanks as well to you listeners. I hope that you're enjoying the podcast and will keep listening as it progresses. The next landmark is to get to episode 50, which I fully intend to do. Anyway, as ever, you can follow the podcast on Twitter at spherical underscore pod. And to contact me at SphereHQ, please email someothersphere at gmail.com. You can find the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify and Stitcher. And most likely your favourite other podcast listening app, whatever that might be. Likes, ratings and reviews are very much appreciated. Thank you for listening.